Our passage for this Trinity Sunday is taken from 1 Peter, which we've been studying for several weeks, and uh, I skipped over this passage and saved it for this Sunday. And the text is 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. This is how it reads. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the marvelous revelation in your word in these two verses. They tell us much about you, about your Son, and about the Holy Spirit. We pray that you'll open up this text to us today, that we might learn more of the great salvation work that you are doing in our lives through your Son, and by your Holy Spirit, we ask in our Savior's name, Amen. Amen. Eight weeks ago, on April the 9th, we Christians of the Western tradition, that is not Orthodox, uh, celebrated Easter. We celebrated our Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead on the third day. And we can read in the scriptures of the New Testament that he appeared on ten different occasions in his resurrected physical body. He appeared to his eleven disciples and also to some others in order to confirm to them his real and bodily resurrection. He also spent time teaching his disciples. Uh, it may be surprising how much he taught them when we get a chance to sit down and talk to them in the new age to come. But when he ascended, after being with them during this 40-day period, he returned to heaven in his resurrected body. The incarnate Son of God was forever at the right hand of God in his incarnate resurrected body. There's a man in heaven this morning sitting at God's right hand. So the 11 disciples and those associated with them were convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the long-promised Messiah, the deliverer of God's people, the descendant of King David, had appeared among men, and death could not keep its hold on him. He was the risen Son of God. His people were convinced. And ever since, on the Lord's Day, the church throughout the earth has gathered to celebrate Christ's resurrection from the dead. But that's not all that we celebrate. We celebrate also the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who was sent from heaven on the day of Pentecost, some 50 days after Christ was resurrected. The Spirit was outpoured in power upon that group of 120 believers and they were filled with the Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness as they began to branch out from Jerusalem and preach the gospel throughout the Roman world, eventually going as far north as Britain and as far east as India. So this was the message of the gospel in a nutshell. 
that God had sent His Son from heaven and He took upon Himself our complete human nature and was in every way just as we are without sin. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And there the Father poured the Holy Spirit through Him upon the church, upon believers. Remember that Jesus had said in John chapter 7, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. But after his death and resurrection and ascension, he was glorified. And the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, and the disciples realized what was happening, that all those Old Testament scriptures, such as Joel chapter 2, uh, were coming to pass. They were being fulfilled uh, in their very presence. So, a new day had dawned in the history of God's dealings with His people. The days of preparation and foreshadowing were over. The culmination of God's purposes was coming to pass. The Holy Spirit's presence, His permanent presence in the hearts of His people, something that had not been known in the days of the Old Testament, was now coming to pass. The personal experience of the indwelling Holy Spirit had now become the possession of all believers in Jesus Christ. Since the dawn of human history, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, and for many succeeding generations, God had revealed himself to the Hebrew people as through Moses. And this was a marvelous revelation. The oracles of God were given to the Hebrew people. But that was not all that God was preparing to reveal to humanity. In the fullness of time, he sent his son into the world. And men and women in Judea and Galilee and Samaria were confronted with a person who no humans had ever been privileged to see and hear and know. They observed his actions, his words, his attitude, his behavior. And his disciples especially began to realize who he was. He was more than just a normal, regular human. There was more about him, though he was a normal human. They began to realize, especially after the Holy Spirit was poured out, that Yahweh had come among them in the person of the carpenter of Nazareth. And they were not wrong. They were not mistaken when they worshipped him, as John, uh, Thomas did when Jesus appeared and invited him to touch him and he fell down and said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus did not rebuke Thomas for worshiping him, but he received that worship. So the church was now experiencing firsthand the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God among his people on earth. And the disciples realized that Jesus' promise of a comforter to come had really happened as they began 
to know the presence, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so they experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, in their lives daily. He was always with them. He was revealing more about Jesus to them. He was giving them a growing understanding of his word, convicting them of their sins and comforting and strengthening them in their distresses and trials. So what was happening here is that the Christian believers were experiencing the entire ministry of the triune God in their lives. Since before the foundation of the world, God had been planning to minister to his people out of the fullness of his Trinitarian being. That God is one God is clear from the Bible. For example, in Deuteronomy 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 4, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, that is Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So this was well established in the Hebrew religion and also reaffirmed in Christianity. Both the Old Testament and New Testament are clear that there's only one God. But the great mystery of God's being is that within himself, he also exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God is both one, one in his being and substance, yet three as to his persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of these three persons is absolutely equal in power, glory, wisdom, holiness, love, and all the attributes are characteristics that make God to be God. Only God, for example, is almighty. No other creature or power is almighty except God. And so we say the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Spirit is almighty. But there's only one God. Three almighties, three almighty persons make up the one God. Well, the being and personhood within God is something really beyond our total ability to grasp. God is greater than our own human thoughts and understanding. But he has chosen to reveal to us much about his being and about his nature, and we can understand much true knowledge about God. We do not have exhaustive understanding of God because he's too great and he's too awesome for us to be able to fully grasp. So what we do, we receive and embrace what God has shown to us about himself. The greatest revelation of himself happened when the second person of the Godhead, as we call the Trinity, came to earth and he took upon himself our human nature so he could tell us and show us much about himself that had not yet been revealed. Without the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth, our knowledge of God would be severely restricted. How would we know more about God? How would we know what he was like? When we look at Jesus, when we study Jesus, we learn about the eternal God. 
He's been gracious to come clothe himself in our humanity so that we could grasp him. We could understand him. We could learn about him. You know, living here in the year 2023, we should be thankful that we live in a time in human history after God sent his son into the world. So we know much more about God and have so much more vital experience of God because of Christ's coming and because of the Holy Spirit's coming. He came to teach us about Christ and many other things. So we can be thankful that we live on this side of the cross and the resurrection. And so our experience and knowledge of God is 10 or 20 or maybe 100 times more than the Old Testament believers had. The great prophet Isaiah would have been happy to know and experience God in Christ the way even the most humble New Testament believer knows God and experiences Him today. Isaiah would have been happy to trade places. Well, we ourselves... If we were offered the chance to, say, take a time machine and go back in, in history and take David's throne, that would not be worth losing one minute of the present knowledge and experience we now have of the Lord Jesus and of His Spirit. We have tasted of heavenly glories and could never go back. So let's plunge into our text today. And see what divine truth we can learn. We read at the beginning of verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now it's easy to skip over those words. But who was this man Peter? He's one man. A man like us. One man speaking to other men. But he's no ordinary man. He's no ordinary fisherman from Galilee. He's a man who had a life experience that was, to put it mildly, very enviable. He had spent three years for the Lord of glory. He'd heard words from his mouth. He'd seen miracles of his healing and deliverance. He'd seen him override the normal laws of nature. He took the common element of water, turned it into wine, and on another occasion walked on it across the sea. He had been there to see his Lord and Master crucified on a Roman cross, and then after his resurrection had heard his teaching and been with him on several occasions, had even eaten with him and talked with him and received instructions for his apostolic ministry. So Peter had been right there in the middle of the action. Jesus made him his right-hand man. Peter, the rowdy fisherman, had been conquered and subdued by the love of the incarnate Lord of glory. His heart was changed. His life was changed. His mission had changed. He had given up something good for something far better, from a successful fisherman to an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to spread the news of the long-promised arrival of the Messiah, the one anointed with the Holy Spirit who had come into human history and fulfilled the Scripture's predictions about the life and ministry of the Messiah. 
So Peter was a blessed man to have witnessed the very presence of the Son of God on earth, to have heard these words from his mouth, to see his compassion and power as he went around, went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. He had seen his Lord dying on Calvary's cross. But on resurrection day, Peter had gotten a personal visit from Jesus restoring him after he had denied the Lord. And Peter's life was changed forever. He had a heavenly calling to be an apostle of Christ. He was especially called to minister the gospel to his own Jewish people. He was anointed by the Spirit to do his apostolic work, and he writes this letter, as did all the prophets before him, in the anointing and guidance of the Holy Spirit. So what Peter writes here, he writes for God, it comes from God, his message as all of the New Testament is, is under the divine authority. So we had best read it and heed it and drink deeply of it as a dying man would thirst for water when he finally reached an oasis in the desert with clear flowing streams. Well, we go on and read in verse 1 about the recipients of this letter. It says... To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Some translations translate elect exiles into elect sojourners, travelers, wanderers. The idea here is that Christians are not permanent residents of this world. We belong to another world, another kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, and we're passing through this world. This world is important, and we're called to serve Christ in it. But we're headed for a better world, a world where Christ sits on the throne, and we shall see him face to face. Now, the word dispersion here, uh, the elect exiles of dispersion, may mean that Peter's writing primarily to the Jewish Christians, those who had left Jerusalem and Judea and were scattered into various countries around there. This is what John Calvin, for example, believed, but others see this term, the dispersion, as referring to a scattering of Christians, which would include both Jews and Gentiles. But this particular, these particular regions, these five areas, are in what is now present-day Turkey, which, as you may know, is almost totally Muslim. Had been many Christians there at one time. Well, <clears throat> Peter now does in verse 2 something very interesting, very important, which uh, I think is quite unique. I can't think of any other epistle in the New Testament that does what he does. He introduces the great work of the triune God into the lives of God's people. He mentions what the Father does, what the Spirit does, and what the Son does. He doesn't mention all that each of the divine persons do, but uh, he does mention some very important things that each one of them does. And so we see the reality of the one God existing in three persons is immediately brought to the foreground in Peter's presentation of the work of God in the lives of his people. So, Verse 2 says this. 
according to, okay, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to these elect exiles, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We notice here that God is called Father. Now we may skip over that, but this was a crucial revelation to the people of God. Uh, God has not spoken of His Father that much in the Old Testament. It is the Lord Jesus Christ to whom we're indebted to instruct us and embed in our understanding that God is truly the Father of His people. Uh, the Spirit comes in our hearts so that we call out to Him, Abba, Father, a term of endearment. It's a term of affection, of commitment, of love. This is the kind of God our God is. He's our Father. So these Christian people, these elect exiles, are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay, here's a term here, foreknowledge. What does that mean? It's an important word. Well, it certainly means that God knew ahead of time what's going to happen and who was going to come to him in saving faith. He can see into the future. He can know who will come to him in faith and who will not. But there's more to this term than that. It embraces that, but it embraces more. In the biblical language, it carries the meaning of knowing with distinguishing love. It carries the meaning of love and commitment. For example, we see in Jeremiah 1.5, Yahweh says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I anointed you a prophet to the nations. So God foreknew his calling upon Jeremiah's life. And when Jeremiah was born, God began to work this out in his life and ministry. Or we can read in the New Testament, Paul writes to the Galatians, Christians, in chapter 4, verse 9, he says this, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So, Paul is saying to the Galatians, you are known by God. What it really means is you are loved by God. Why do you want to turn your back when God loves you and he saved you? Again, John Calvin says, God knew before the world was created those whom he had elected for salvation. When we speak of God's foreknowledge, his foreknowledge of his people, it means that he looked out upon the generations of the human race and he set his distinguishing special love on certain hell-bound sinners in every nation, tribe, and tongue, and he loved them and he made plans to rescue them from their sins. He didn't just see who would come to faith, but he worked with his spirit within them so that they infallibly came to faith in his son. There was no way they couldn't come because God had chosen to bring them to himself. Well, let's look at a couple other places where this word foreknowledge is used in the New Testament. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Here's Peter again preaching in Jerusalem. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now notice here. He says, Jesus was de delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. These two concepts are linked together, showing that what happens, happens because God brings it about. Those who come to faith in Him. Or if we look at Romans 8, 29, that golden chain as we call it, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So here again, we see the same kind of linkage. The word foreknew is linked to the word predestined. It's a united concept. God's people were predestined to salvation. Their destiny to believe in Christ was determined ahead of time before it ever happened. Peter, in fact, had already declared this electing love of God when he calls these Christians in this area of Turkey, those who are elect exiles. It's right there at the very beginning. Elect sojourners elected by God. These elect exiles were, were in an enviable position because God knew ahead of time not only who would come to him in faith, but the whole reason they would come to him in saving faith was because he would call them and woo them and awaken them spiritually so that they would indeed come to the Lord and call upon him to save them. So, we are seeing here something of the work of the triune God as he works among his people as the heavenly father calls us according to his foreknowledge, his previous loving of us. Just think about this. If you're a Christian today, it means God has loved you for a long time. He set his love upon you before he created the world. He had a plan to bring the gospel to you and to enable you to believe it and to be saved. Well, next we read about the work of the Holy Spirit. What does the Father does do? He calls us in His foreknowledge. What does the Spirit do? It says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. What does the word sanctification mean? Well, it basically has the idea of separation in conjunction with God the Father for knowing us and for loving us the Holy Spirit works in our lives to set us apart from the world and from sin to be God's special people. God, indeed, the Father foreknew us, but it was the Spirit who brought this reality to our individual hearts and minds to regenerate us, to make us come alive so that we would repent of our sins and believe the gospel. The Father loved us, yes, but in time, the Spirit moved within us to bring us into the kingdom. 
Sanctification and chosenness can be understood as belonging to a process. God's people are chosen and set apart for God's fellowship and service, and they enter into a lifelong process of becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctification, the sanctification of the Spirit, points both to our initial rescue from our sins and our placement into Christ's kingdom, and also it refers to our ongoing spiritual growth. We are in a process of becoming more like Christ as our lives line up more and more with the Word of God as we're renewed in our minds by His Word through His Spirit. Well, the Father loved us with distinguishing love, foreknowledge. The Spirit set us apart from the world, from our sins. Now we see what the Son does. What the Son does in conjunction with the work of the Father and the Spirit. It says, in the latter part here of verse 3, for obedience. We've been sanctified, set apart, according to the foreknowledge of God, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Two basic ideas here. The Spirit sets us apart so we can be obedient to Jesus Christ. Those who are in the world, those of us, all of us previously, did not obey Jesus Christ. I can think of a few times in my life, I gave no thought to Christ. I was sinning bad. But now, <laughs> things have changed, thank God. I have a king. I have a savior. I have a guide for my life. You notice how obedience to Jesus Christ is an expression of deity. Who are we to obey in this world? Not our own sinful desires, not the dictates of the culture around us, which happens to change with every new wind that comes along. Our ultimate obedience is to who? To God alone, to His Son, Jesus Christ. So all of this fits together. The work of the triune God. The Father loves us. The Spirit sets us apart for God. And then the Spirit also works in our lives so that we become obedient to Jesus Christ more and more. This obedience is not optional. If there's an area of our lives where we realize we're not obedient as we should be to Christ, we do need to make some changes. Well, there's another major part of verse to here, not only set apart for obedience to Jesus Christ, but for sprinkling in his blood. What does that mean, sprinkling with his blood? Well, it's a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system in which blood, the blood of animals, was sprinkled in the temple, on the altar, on the priest, or on the people, indicating the cleansing of their sin. For example, we read in Exodus 24, verse 6, Moses took half the blood of this slain animal, put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw it on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, 
All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. He sprinkled the blood on the people as a sign of their covenant commitment to him which they had expressed. And he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And if we look at the day of atonement that happened in the fall of the year, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, we read in Leviticus 16, verse 14, it says, The priest shall take some of the blood of the bull that was killed, and he'll sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat, on the east side, in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanlinesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanlinesses. So this sprinkling of animal blood was a, a provisional uh, uh, practice, religious practice, to cover the sins of the people. Of course, it did not remove their sins. Only the blood of Christ would do that. Now, John Calvin makes this comment. Formerly, the law, under the law, the sprinkling of blood was done by the hand of the priest, right? But now the Holy Spirit sprinkles our souls with the blood of Christ for the removal of our sins. And Calvin rightly ties the work of the Son to the accompanying work of the Spirit. He says, both renewal into obedience of God and removal by the blood of Christ of our sins are the work of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 9 says this, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify, make holy for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the blood of Christ has power to remove our sins, to cleanse our consciences so that we can serve the living God. What a great thing God has done through Christ to provide for true and real forgiveness and salvation for his people. Well, he calls us into obedience. We're not perfectly obedient, but we're learning and we're growing. When God shows us an area of our life where we're lacking, we call upon him to help us. This precious blood of Christ washes away our sins once for all. It does what the Old Testament sacrifice of animals could not do. This is amazing. All these things that our triune God is doing for our salvation. God so loves his people that he throws his whole weight into their salvation. The Spirit just doesn't hold back and stay in heaven. Say, okay, Father, you and Son take care of these people down there. No. All three of them pour themselves into 
the salvation of God's people. God spares nothing to save us and to keep us. All three persons of the one God are active in our lives. Now you can't ask for a more dynamic and powerful salvation than that. You won't find it anywhere on earth in any other religion. The Father knew us. He loved us before the creation of the universe. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, brought us to faith in Christ. He enabled us to believe. Christ shed His blood to wash away our sins so we could live lives of devoted obedience to Him. He is a great King. What a privilege it is to know Him and to serve such a holy and wonderful Lord. You see, this salvation business that God is working for His people is not something that is done haphazardly, but God is very intentional and very exact in His planning and execution of His salvation for His people. God will accomplish His purpose in each of our lives. He saves us, and He will bring us safely to His eternal kingdom. Remember what we read in 1 Peter 1, verse 5? By God's power, not our power, by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're guarded by God's power. The triumph God will make sure that we arrive safely in our heavenly home. So let us rejoice in God that God's foreknowledge of us, our Father's loving us from long ago, and let us rejoice in the sanctifying work of His Spirit within us and rejoice in the fact that the sprinkling of our lives with the blood of Christ brings us true cleansing of sin and governs us, ushers us into a life of obedience to Jesus Christ. The work of the great triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is working to save us and to keep us, and it will be accomplished, and so we rest and we rejoice in that today. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for setting your eye of love upon us, your people, even before you created the universe. Thank you that your Holy Spirit worked in our lives and is continuing to work so that you bring us to faith and you bring us to service to Jesus Christ. Thank you for him who shed his blood on Calvary's cross to wash away our sins. We thank and praise you, our great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To you be glory in our lives and in the church forever. Amen. Amen.